0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's Practice Groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of Practice Group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this
1: Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host a panel discussion titled who decides if January 6th was an insurrection prohibiting the election of participants. Joining us today is a great panel of legal experts who bring a range of views to the topic. In the interest of time, we'll keep intros brief at the outset here. You can view our speakers' full bios at fedsoc.org. Our moderator today, Devin Watkins, is an attorney at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Devin previously worked at the Cato Institute as a legal associate, and his op-eds have appeared in national review online, The Hill, Time, and the Federalist, among other outlets. After discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A as time allows. So please enter any questions you'd like to ask our speakers in the Q&A function at the bottom right of your Zoom window. Finally, I'll note that as always, all expressions of opinion are those of the speakers joining us today.
2: With that, Devin, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, We have three very experienced uh, attorneys with us today to help discuss the disqualification clause or also called the insurrection clause that uh, generally prohibits someone from holding federal or state office if they have sworn an oath to defend the constitution and then commit uh, insurrection or rebellion or uh, give aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States. Uh, we're gonna discuss a variety of aspects of this clause, uh, what it means to be in an insurrection, who gets to decide who has done this uh, and all kinds of different aspects to this. Our panelists have a long history, each and every one of them. Uh, so I'm not gonna go through all of that. I'm just gonna be focusing on what their current position is and and their experience with the disqualification clause that shows that they're an expert on this specific clause because it is very rarely litigated. Uh, we have uh, first with us, James Bob, Jr. He is the founder of Bob Law Firm. He represented uh, Congressman Crawthorne and Major Taylor Green in a against a disqualification challenge to their office. Uh, second, we have Press Mullen. He is a partner at Womble, Bond, and Dickinson, and um, an experienced trial attorney who represented the challengers to Cawthorn on, uh, Congressman Cawthorn on the disqualification clause grounds. Last, we have Corey as managing partner at Statecraft. Uh, he successfully represented Congressman Andy Biggs before the Arizona Supreme Court on the disqualification clause challenge. So with that, I'm going to start with uh, James Bob Jr. Uh, to lead us off and help uh, give us a little bit more detail about this clause and uh, what is going on. Uh, thank you, and thank
3: you very much for uh, letting me participate in this uh, event. Uh, of course, I represented two different congressmen, uh, Cawthorn and Green, in their separate challenges to their candidacy for re-election. Uh, I, Congressman Cawthorn uh, was, of course, subject to a voter challenge through a state procedure, and this is available in every state. Uh, However, we brought a federal lawsuit that enjoined the state from participating, uh, from pursuing the uh, disqualification uh, challenge uh, because of the Amnesty Act of 1872, had removed the political disabilities associated with that as applied to him. Uh, He then lost the primary, but we kept that challenge off his back. And then the Fourth Circuit, in a moot case, uh, decided it anyway and um, uh, disagreed uh, with the district court on the Amnesty Act. Regarding Marjorie Taylor Greene, it was kind of the flip side. Uh, Same uh, state challenge uh, to her candidacy uh, at being disqualified. Uh, We brought a federal case, which uh, uh, our preliminary injunction was denied. As a result, we went through the state procedure. uh, had a hearing. uh, The voters tried to put on a case. The administrative law judge found no evidence, zero, zero, zero evidence, uh, that she engaged in an insurrection uh, so we won this, the case in state uh, under uh, in the hearing and then in the subsequent appeal uh, in state court. Uh, and we are now waiting 11th Circuit decision on our constitutional challenges to uh, this whole process, including applying uh, Section 3. Uh, you know, this is a national effort uh, that has been brought by a group called Free Speech for People, They have brought this against dozens of uh, US senators, congressmen, state reps, local public officials, the vast majority of which had absolutely nothing to do with the attack upon uh, the Capitol, but seemed to be uh, particular targets of liberal distaste. Uh, And uh, they have already filed letters uh, with every secretary of state Uh, to uh, claiming that Trump uh, is an insurrectionist as as a result of January 6th, and uh, should be denied uh, candidacy in every state. Uh, So this is uh, something that uh, uh, will need several wooden stakes in in the heart, probably, uh, in order to to stop this misguided effort uh, and probably several years of litigation and chaos. Uh, This is a classic example of liberal exaggeration uh, where they weaponize an issue to attack their opponents and democracy. Uh, They take something which, in my opinion, uh, uh, was bad enough, which was a despicable attack on the U.S. Capitol, and they turn it into a lie. And the lie is that there was an insurrection uh, on that day. They deploy this lie then to undermine democracy by trying to remove people from office, preventing them from being candidates uh, for office, uh, thereby stripping the voters of their right to elect their representative people and empowering uh, bureaucrats, lawyers, and judges with the power to select Uh, who's going to be in public office. Now, the problem that uh, Congress and the American people dealt with with Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was that after the Civil War, the Southerners were still electing Confederate leaders uh, to public office, including uh, Congress. And uh, the uh, Republicans uh, in the Congress uh, objected to this and um, ultimately led to Section 3 of the 4th, uh, 14th Amendment. It provides in relevant part that no person shall be a senator or representative ex- and then, et cetera, hold any office, civil or military, et cetera, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or officer or et cetera, to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Uh, uh, In other words, they cannot take office. Uh, If you've sworn an oath, you engage in uh, insurrection or rebellion, you cannot take a subsequent oath uh, uh, in in order to take office. The last sentence importantly is that Congress may by a vote of two thirds of each house, remove such disability. Now, this has several key aspects to it. Uh, One of the most important of which, of course, is that it has both retroactive and prospective effect. So the way it is wording, it would affect uh, both uh, uh, what happened uh, in the Civil War, uh, the people who, prior to the Civil War, were, had taken an oath, uh, then engaged in insurrection, could not then become, uh, 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 could take a subsequent oath, uh, and it had a prospective effect. If this occurred in the future, then it would be applicable. Of course, the most important words are engage and the word insurrection, both of which were very narrow. There is an attorney general opinion uh, in 1867 of those exact words where engage is an over direct act, uh, not uh, 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 mere disloyal sentiments or expressions uh, are not sufficient. Uh, and secondly, uh, insurrection is a domestic war. Uh, as the Attorney General in 1867 described it. Now, there are several problems with private parties trying to enforce Section 3. First, the disqualification to take office cannot be determined until the actual date when the person on January 3rd presents themselves to take the oath of office. And that is, while someone may have met met the conditions for disqualification, before, you never know when Congress exercising its power to uh, remove such disability, whether or not the Congress shall, will remove that disability until the person presents themselves. So you cannot use Article 3 to say, well, you can't run for office, which is what the voters are doing here, uh, uh, because when you show up for uh, to be sworn in, you cannot take the oath because you don't know in the meantime, whether or not Congress will remove uh, that disability. So it cannot be used as a weapon against somebody being a candidate uh, for office. Second, there's no private cause of action. I mean, this was decided at from the get go uh, in, in Ray Griffin in 1869. Uh, then Chief Justice Chase, uh, sir, operating as a circuit justice, uh, held that uh, there was uh, no private cause of action uh, for a, uh, cl- a claim under uh, the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, because only Congress can provide for such co- uh, private cause of action. Uh, This is, uh, of course, continues to be true, as we know, in the Armstrong case recently decided by the Supreme Court. They said that, look, just because something's in the U.S. Constitution uh, doesn't mean you have a private cause of action. Uh, Private cause of action has to be specifically provided for if if you as a private party is going to use a provision of Congress against another private party. And then in a footnote, they said, well, but of course, if a state uses, uh, or a government uses, uh, is pursuing you, and you have a defense under the Constitution, uh, uh, then you can, of course, always assert that, which is what we are doing on behalf of Green and Cawthorn. Uh And then finally, uh, the amnesty, the fourth the Amnesty Act of 1872 removed this perspective. Did uh, this disability uh, when uh, the uh, Congress uh, said, uh, that, uh, said that said uh, that they were removing uh, from uh, a large category of people all the political disabilities imposed by uh, the third section of the Fourteenth Amendment are hereby removed from all persons whatsoever. Well, Cawthorn, green or all persons whatsoever and their disability has been removed. Finally, uh, employing uh, Section 3 to prevent a person from being a candidate for office uh, abrogates the Congress's sole authority under Article 1, Section 3 to judge the qualifications of its own members because if you remove Green, she's not, can't run in the general election, she's not elected, uh, Congress is deprived of the opportunity to judge for themselves, whether or not section three uh, disqualifies her, and that, uh, and that is contrary to the Constitution. There's lots of other problems, some of which Corey will talk about, uh, but this is really a terrible misbegotten effort that could create the most enormous chaos in the history of the United States elections, if we have a candidate for president of the United States, they're challenged in every state on whether or not he or she can be on the ballot. Uh, this is the most the most direct attack on our democracy, on the right to vote, on the ability of the American people to function to uh, have a representative democracy, uh, short uh, of the Civil War, and uh, it's despicable. And uh, while the attack on the Capitol was despicable, this is a despicable response.
2: Okay. So our next uh, presenter is gonna be Press Mullin.
4: Thanks, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, this is not my uh, uh, normal venue, but uh, I'm here and uh, happy to re-engage with uh, my friend, Mr. Bopp, and uh, uh, learn, learn about these things. Um, you know, I think what you heard from Jim was sort of a, uh, a wholesale um, condemnation of uh, of what's going on here. But I think the problem is this is something uh, that is not a creation of, of some uh, liberal cabal. This is something that was put into the United States Constitution in 1868. And a determination was made at that time uh, as to uh, who would be appropriate to serve in these various positions. And that determination uh, essentially said that uh, if you fit into this narrow category of persons who had sworn an oath to the United States then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, you couldn't come back and hold office. And that was a determination made uh, in the 14th Amendment and is not dissimilar from other determinations that are made in the Constitution regarding the qualifications of candidates, such as that they should be citizens, such as that they should be, if they're going to be members of the House, 25 years and older, with other age restrictions applying to the senators and presidents. So these are not things uh, that um, uh, you know, arise from a liberal cabal. These are things that arise from the United States Constitution like it or not. And, you know, if, if people want to argue that there is bad public policy embodied in Section 3, that in fact, people who do engage in insurrection and rebellion, having previously sworn, a, sworn an oath not to do that, ought to be allowed to continue to serve in office, then that's something that's going to require an amendment to the Constitution. I can promise you, despite the gloom and doom that was painted, and I'm really just a lawyer in North Carolina, this is not my job. Some people came to us who really were not fans of their congressman, Madison Cawthorn and they were not all liberal Democrats. In fact, when all was said and done, Madison Cawthorn had very few friends among Republicans, Democrats, or unaffiliated voters because of the way that he conducted himself as a member of Congress. But I can absolutely promise you that no letter has been filed with the Secretary of State of North Carolina stating that uh, Mr. Trump is not eligible to run for office. So, you know, sort of looking a little bit more at kind of the historical basis here. And I think this give a broader and I think really more accurate historical picture. Um, And again, you know, my experience is limited to North Carolina with what we did here with respect to Cawthorn, but North Carolina would not be a state in the union today had it not explicitly agreed to enforce section three of the 14th amendment. And the fact is the 40th Congress on June 25th, 1868, by a two thirds majority in each house and over the objection of then president Andrew Johnson passed a law, 15 Stat. 73, that was entitled an act to admit the states of North Carolina. And there were six others to representation in Congress. And that act stated that it would take effect upon each state's, each of those states, ratification of the proposed 14th Amendment, and it contained the following explicit provision and condition for North Carolina. Quote, no person prohibited from holding office under the United States or under any state by section three of the proposed amendment to the Constitution of the United States, known as Article 14, shall be deemed eligible to any office in either of said states, unless relieved from the disability as provided in said amendment. Two weeks later, two weeks after North Carolina was readmitted on that condition, on July 9th, 1868, the 14th amendment was fully ratified. So the, the argument that the operation of the terms of Section 3, uh, you know, through state processes, in particular, the North Carolina process, somehow thwarts the will of the voters by permitting bureaucrats to strike disqualified candidates from the ballot. That's an ahistorical argument. That is precisely what Section 3 was intended to do. Voters in the former Confederacy, and Jim mentioned this, they wanted to continue to be represented by insurrectionists. North Carolina even tried to send its Confederate governor, Zebulon Vance, to Congress, and he was not allowed to take his seat. And our nation, not our congressional district, not our state, but our nation, adopted an amendment that mandates that this very small slice of humanity, insurrectionists who had previously taken the oath are disqualified from serving, no matter how much the voters of their state or district prefer them. The constitution doesn't allow the voters to send teenagers or Chileans to Congress, and they can't send insurrectionists who have taken the vote either. And so we've had this process, uh, uh, you know, in North Carolina through a challenge process and uh, with respect to Cawthorn. And the case was, uh, Mr. Bob contend was mooted. It actually wasn't mooted in the sense, the legal sense of the word. and. Uh, the determination was made that the Amnesty Act did not apply to Mr. Cawthorn. In the other case where the court ruled against um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's claim under the Amnesty Act and other provisions, Mr. Bopp went to court. And as he he stated, the ALJ, as you would expect uh, a procedure to work, made the determination that she did not fit the category of insurrectionists. And now, as a result of the good work done by Jim, we will now be treated probably for the, at least the next two years to the public policy uh, discussion that Marjorie Taylor Greene brings to Congress. And we won't be deprived of that as a result. So, um, you know, I will say North Carolina, in addition to that readmission commission uh, condition, very shortly after being readmitted, North Carolina through its Supreme Court determined in a case called uh, Worthy that an individual who had held office, in fact, he was just a sheriff of a particular county in North Carolina, but under a Confederate government was not entitled uh, to continue to hold office by virtue of section three. So, you know, again, private parties that's the way North Carolina set up its, its challenge procedure. If someone wants to run for Congress, or frankly, any office in North Carolina, uh, it's utterly amazing. I I'd, uh, encourage you to check out the form that you have to fill out in order to run for Congress in North Carolina. You basically have to put your name and address <laughs> and sign it. Uh, you don't have to aver that you are a citizen which is obviously a requirement uh, under the constitution, you do not have to aver that you are a citizen of the state, which is a requirement under the constitution. And North Carolina has chosen uh, as one of the 50 states, that the way that it will police this is by allowing the candidates to submit a very sort of sparse form that doesn't require them to say very much or do very much. And then there is a procedure for challenging it. And it is a procedure that involves voters from the particular district, or could be voters from anywhere in the state for a statewide office to essentially lodge a challenge on a verified complaint uh, and then the candidate needs to come forward and say, I'm 25 years old. I am in fact a citizen of North Carolina or in the case of the particular thing we're talking about with respect to section three, no, I didn't engage in insurrection. And the fact of the matter is there are 13 congressmen in North Carolina, seven Republicans, six Democrats, and only one of them would have any difficulty in making the minimal amount of proof that I assume none of us on this call would have any difficulty making, that we have not engaged in insurrection. Now, on the Amnesty Act, the issue was um, the the issue was that Mr. Cawthorn asserted that in 1872 that Congress passed a fairly broad amnesty as is permitted under section three that took, again, a very large swath of Confederates and said, you are, um, uh, uh, you are no longer covered by this. And in that circumstance, um, that was uh, something that, um uh, You know, covered those particular persons, didn't cover other higher ranking Confederates, but uh, certainly we argued did not cover future insurrectionists, Mm -hmm. the unborn insurrectionists.
2: Uh, Go ahead. Uh, Well, we'll be coming back to you again. I just wanted to give Corey a chance to uh, say his uh, thoughts and then we'll return to you afterwards uh, to kind of reply to what Corey thinks as well. Uh, So with that, uh, Corey, if you can please explain your thoughts on the insurrection
0: clause. Sure. um, Thanks for having me, uh, Devin and Jack. Um, I've been asked to address two issues and the, the first is, um, how we should think about um the the phrase engage in insurrection. And this ends up being <laughs> the, um, the, the phrase is not defined in the constitution. I guess the um the meaning of the words is just kind of assumed. And uh <laughs> so uh, courts have struggled now to define that. Um, um Definition that we've got from the courts through this series of cases is from uh, the Mexico court, which actually is one of the more interesting cases this still pushes. And, um, We're having
2: a little bit of audio problems so on my end. Can you make sure your mic is plugged in fully or something
0: like that? Yeah, is this any better? Yeah, uh, it was going in now. Hopefully that fixes it. All right, great. Um, so the um, as I was saying, there's no constitutional definition of engage in insurrection. And um, so uh, the the courts have struggled to define this. One of the more interesting definitions we've got so far is from the New Mexico case, which is still pending. New Mexico in, uh, New Mexico has um, banned from office um, a, a county office holder there. And that case is still on appeal, but it's been appealed, as I understand it, to the New Mexico Supreme Court. Um, let's start before we get to how the New Mexico court defined engage in insurrection. Let's start with what almost certainly is not insurrection. And I think that's um, actions by members of Congress uh, on the floor of Congress or uh, in preparation or furtherance of actions on the floor. So a number of the lawsuits, I think six of them um, that have been brought were against congressional candidates, either the House or Senate. And um, all of those relied to some degree on arguments that the defendants, the the congressional candidates, had made on the floor of the House and in one case the Senate, and um, because of the speech and debate immunity clause, um, I think that the um, uh, it's very difficult, probably impossible, to say that um, what you do on the floor of the House, you, basically your official duties as a Congressperson, can be used to Eventually disqualify you from um, office, right? So I think when we're thinking about what it is to engage in insurrection, I think we can just rule out official actions of a Congressperson. Um, but what what's left after that is more difficult. So if we're looking at statutory law, there is um, ten U.S.C. two fifty three, which is in a section defined that is called insurrection. But again, there's no definition of insurrection in that statute right the the meaning is just kind of assumed for the uh, readers to understand so the the definitions then really are drawn from historical practice or just case law so um and the problem is that the um there's a spectrum there right so what Jim uh, Ba was saying at the beginning is the attorney general defined insurrection as something um approximating war you know that, that's a very narrow definition there's not uh, many things we can point to historically as being an insurrection under that definition, um, but the New Mexico court defined it much more broadly. What they said, um, based on you know historical sources, I'd encourage you to read it. It's a it's a thoughtful opinion. He says an insurrection is one an assemblage of persons, so you can't do it alone. Two, acting to prevent the execution of one or more federal laws. Three, for a public purpose, and four through the use of violence force or intimidation by numbers. Now, that's, that's good insofar so far as it goes. But once you start thinking about it, it, in, it includes a lot of things, right? So the um, occupation of downtown uh, Seattle may well count the burning of um, post offices uh, in protest of um, police uh, violence, you know, may well count. And so, um, you know, where is it? Is it is this the correct definition for the New Mexico Court, or is it something that's equivalent to war, like uh, Jim Bopp was saying? Um, I'm not sure, and I think that's that's an issue that's still open to argument. Now, the the further point though is that it's not enough to have been proximate to an insurrection; you have to have engaged in insurrection in order to be disqualified. And so, let's assume, for purposes of this conversation, that. January sixth was an insurrection. That you know, whatever the definition, January sixth was that. You can imagine someone who thought they were going to attend a, a speech, and they were there on Capitol Hill on January sixth, um, but sort of you know blindly walked around, unaware that um, people were transgressing laws. Uh, maybe that would be difficult. It sort of depends on very much on the uh, person's perspective. But it's not enough to be present. You have to engage, says the Constitution. So. Um, uh as Jim Bob said, um, the attorney general has previously said it has to it can't be words or sentiments, it has to be acts. But I'm not sure that if pressed, the court would agree with that. Like if what if the words you um use are urging action by others? Well, that may be sort of aiding and abetting your conspiracy liability in a criminal sense. And so um perhaps words are enough if it's inciting an insurrection. That's not been decided yet. And I think the um, of all the cases that have been brought so far, the only one who's lost, this guy in New Mexico, still on appeal, had the most direct connection to violence of anyone. So the, the Congress persons were, the allegation of insurrection arose from them a- acting on the floor of the Congress, that apparently wasn't enough. But the person in New Mexico apparently was um, urging others to act, he was, um, Approximate to people who were calling for violence, it seems he was transgressing uh, the boundaries that had been set up, uh, apparently disregarding some sort of notifications that the assembly was unlawful. Right. So that's that's much closer to what you could say is engaging in insurrection than all the other defendants in these these series of cases. Um, All right. So um, hopefully that that teases out a little bit more like what it what it means to engage in insurrection. I think there's still room for argument on that in in the cases that remain. The second issue I've been asked to speak to is who decides, uh, you know, what is the proper forum for uh, proving a violation of the Insurrection clause? Well, for congressional candidates, I think the answer is pretty clear. Um, The exclusive authority to decide the qualifications of members of Congress is vested in the Congress. And so, for you know, the six congressional cases that have been brought, it seems like those people should have been able to proceed to the ballot. And if they win, ha- have the issue raised and litigated before Congress actually seats them. For the others though, for all the others, as uh, Press points out, for example, the North Carolina state candidates, um, it, uh, the argument is this, from the defendants of these cases, they say, this is a federal law. If you're going to have private enforcement of it, you." Congress must create a private right of action to enforce the federal law. You can't have a state statute creating a a private right of action to enforce federal law. And then on the other hand, um, you you have, you know, press and his uh, peers arguing that um, surely if there is someone who engages in insurrection against the United States and enforcement of that provision has been a a condition of admitting States to the union, there has to be some way of enforcing it. And so in New Mexico, for example, where they disqualified um, the candidate, the court there did that under their quo veranto statute. Every state has one of these and it basically says you can, you can sue to throw out of office, eject from office someone who lacks the necessary qualifications. And so um, there is no federal statute creating a private right of action under the insurrection clause. But um, at least in one case, they have found that the state um, quo veranto statute is enough to create a, a private right of action and that, that's kind of like the fault line of um how that argument breaks down i will point out that on on the defendant's side of this the idea that there must be a federal private right of action created there is the griffin case from 1869 which as uh jim points out was decided by the then chief justice writing circuit so it's very unusual lower court case written by the chief justice and he he found for what it was worth it the you, you must have a federal private right of action created um in order for there to be private enforcement of this there there is a criminal statute. the government can enforce insurrection cases or can't you can't disqualify people from office based on a uh, a criminal prosecution, but so far no uh, uh, federal right of action created by Congress. well um devin, I think I've talked too long and so I'll get okay. back to you thank you. So, um, with that, I'm going to return to Press Mullen uh, to respond
2: to uh, Corey on the uh, insurrection clause or disqualification clause.
4: Yeah, I, I um, uh, I think Corey makes some some very good points, and I do think that this law is is going to need to be um, is going to need to be litigated and determined in these various forums. I'll tell you from my perspective, um, <clears throat> it, you know. What happened on January 6th, and from the perspective of my clients who swore out uh, challenges against Cawthorn, it was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. And those are not my words. Those are the words of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from February 8th, 2022. I would also say that on August 5th, 2021, Congress passed Public Law 117-32, which was uh, a law to award the congressional gold medals to the United States, uh, four members of the United States Capitol Police, and in that public law, Congress made the following finding in Section 1. On January 6, 2021, a mob of insurrectionists forced its way into the U.S. Capitol building and Congressional Office building and engaged in acts of vandalism, looting, and violently attacked Capitol police officers. So, again, these are, um, you know, and by the way, Madison Cawthorn voted for. That law, uh, to Mr. Bopp and uh, uh, Corey's uh, benefit, I think their clients did not. Uh, their other clients did not. Uh, Ms. Taylor Green did not. Uh, the Arizona, um, uh, the Arizona Congress people voted against that law. There was a question in the in the chat box, and and uh, by the way, I think Corey's uh, uh, observation about the speech and debate clause. Is a uh, is a very pertinent one and one that goes back to uh, uh, to to Parliament in England where they were jailing people for what they said on the floor of the Parliament. Certainly through the time of, of Queen Elizabeth the but then that was considered to be a very bad practice. What I can tell you about Cawthorn, and this was a question in the in the chat, is that Cawthorn uh, was sworn into Congress on January fourth, twenty twenty one. The youngest member of Congress. Um, probably the most immature member of Congress. Uh, Two days later, and uh, having previously urged in December that his followers lightly threaten their members of Congress, uh, and according to the organizers, uh, helping plan some of the day's events, he was one of just a small group, uh, two or three, Congressman who spoke that day at the so-called March to Save America rally, and he encouraged the crowd to, quote, go and fight in Washington, D.C., rather than just sit idly by on our hands. He pointed out to the crowd the distance and direction to the Capitol. And within a couple of hours, as we all saw, a massive crowd breached the Capitol in a violent insurrectionary uh, effort to impede Congress from certifying the election in favor of President Biden. And what we saw that day was horrific. And at least from my perspective, everything we've learned since that day is even more horrific. And when the time came to decide in a, congressional, uh, in a congressional law, what that was, Cawthorn said, yeah, that's an insurrection. So, you know, that's, I think, that point. On the who decides issue, um, I would just say with respect to Griffin, uh, if anybody is um, uh, suffering from insomnia, uh, please go read the Griffin case, <laughs> the circuit decision of uh, uh, then Chief Justice uh, Chase. Uh, I think that the Griffin case can very naturally be cabined to the very peculiar circumstances that were present in Virginia at that time. Uh, it really doesn't talk about a private right of action. The issue is really whether Section 3 is self-executing. And what Chase said there was Section 3 uh, can only be Uh, Is not self-executing. It can only be executed by an act of Congress. But this was at a time when Virginia did not have a state government. It was under military control. And so from that perspective was much like, say, Washington, D.C. is today. And only something enacted by Congress could ever uh, could ever do that. I think when you look at, you know, what North Carolina was conditioned to do, what North Carolina did, what Corey mentioned, which was President Grant, upon taking office, uh, had the U.S. attorneys throughout the Confederacy uh, uh, prosecute dozens of um, warranto writs against persons who were disabled from doing this. I think that really sort of tells the, uh, uh, I I think that really sort of tells the tale. So North Carolina chooses to vest with voters in a given district, the question of making a challenge as to qualifications. This is a qualification, uh, and the North Carolina State Board of Elections found that it was so. And uh, you know, that's the procedure, and that is a procedure that can proceed from the North Carolina Board of Elections through the courts uh, on an expedited basis under the North Carolina statutes. Okay. Uh, Now we're going to be going on to
2: questions. Uh, If anyone has any questions, please use the Q&A feature. Uh, I'm going to ask a question and then we will see if we can get to some of the audience questions. Uh, So my question is to uh, James and Corey. Uh, In the case of the... um, See, in the case of Davis, it's, and Chief Justice uh, Chase said that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, it needs no litigation and legislation on the part of Congress to give it effect. From the very date of its ratification by a sufficient number of states, it began to have all the effects that its tenor gives it. If its provisions and punishment, the punishment begins at once. Uh, so why is that not the case uh, for um, the 14th Why does it need some type of enacting legislation to come into effect by Congress?
3: Uh, I'll be happy to address that. Of course it had effect uh, because the states are empowered and required to enforce that, the uh, Section 3. And, uh, and that's perfectly consistent with the Constitution. States are obligated to follow the Constitution, that's a provision of the Constitution, so they're, they're you know, empowered to enforce it. That's not the issue that I was addressing or that Griffith addressed. Griffin addressed, and I was addressing, whether or not a private litigant, i.e. voters, could enforce Section 3 against another private party using the state procedures. <laughs> And uh uh you know, the and, and of course they've they've sued uh in in uh Wisconsin, they sued in uh court to disqualify you know to take out uh, Senator Johnson and other Uh, public officials there. So they they think that they can enforce it, no, they can't enforce it unless, uh, as under Griffin or any reasonable reading of the 14th Amendment, unless Congress authorizes it pursuant to Section 3. And of course, Congress has never authorized private enforcement of the provision. I'll
0: I'll add a thought to that. if there, is, if there is private enforcement, whether through quote uh, state quo or onto statutes, or if, if Congress were to create a private right of action, or if, or if um, it's implicit, let's say, um, we've got to confront some difficult questions. So you basically have private enforcement at that point of a criminal statute, you have to prove a, a crime in order to, uh, you know, prove the, the violation. And um, so it's, I think, a quasi-criminal action, that's a fair characterization, and what standard of proof would apply then? I think it should be clear and convincing evidence. I don't think you should be able to prove a quasi-criminal claim through a preponderance standard, uh, but courts haven't really confronted that issue yet, right? Um, and uh, would uh, wh- what restrictions would apply to plaintiffs and would they have like Brady restrictions? If they're, if they're aware of some exonerating evidence, would they have to disclose that um, as a constitutional matter, not just as a matter of state procedures? So, um, There are a lot of problems that go along with private enforcement of quasi-criminal matters, which just had not been confronted yet because most of the cases haven't gotten that far.
2: Okay. Uh, The next question comes from the audience. Um, He he asks, rather than case-by-case litigation involving dozens of individuals or perhaps dozens of different states all around the country, maybe some deciding one way or another, how how do you see this being resolved uh, in some type of consistent forum? Uh, Or do you plan to see it being resolved on 50 separate actions? Well, I'll bring this to uh, Mr. Mullen. Uh, Do you think uh, some type of multi-district litigation that kind of consolidates all of these together? Uh, would work, or some other way to resolve this in a fashion that is consistent among all the different states.
4: Yeah, that, that's a good question, and I really don't know the answer to it. You know, I do know that I'm not going to be representing a, uh, a class of putative uh, insurrectionists who want a declaratory judgment that the statute is unconstitutional in some way. I will say this, and it, and it sort of goes. I think it follows on from your your previous question. Uh, You know, which I think is broadly sort of addressed to the issue of who decides Um, it's it's very typical um, and uh, particularly with respect to um, presidential candidates on the ballot for these to be considered to be state issues in the first instance. And, you know, there are any, you know, there are cases in the 10th circuit, cases in the 9th circuit uh, that all deal, uh, that all deal with, with these issues. And I think, you know, I I think the states should be free to enact uh, in the first instance, their own procedures about uh, how a candidate may qualify and what a candidate must satisfy in order to do that. Uh, In North Carolina, if you're not an eligible voter, you can't run for office. If you have a pending felony conviction, you would not be an eligible voter. If somebody put their name on the ballot uh, through what, as I described to you, is a very simple North Carolina procedure of filling out a form that would take all of five minutes uh, and had been convicted of a felony, I think that's something that a state is entitled to do, to keep a felon off the ballot the same way you would keep a felon from voting. Uh, the next question from the audience
2: was how close to the line would engage you in protests where some uh, are violently attempting to interfere with the United States Supreme Court decision making rather than Congress? Uh, I know we uh, have uh, some Uh, rowdy protests outside of judges' homes right now. And at least last term, the Supreme Court had to put up some very high fencing to keep out people uh, from the court. Uh, And we know, uh, for instance, Schumer uh, came out and said to the uh, justices, you know, you will reap the whirlwind if you do that. And some interpreted that at least as rather hostile views and perhaps uh, at least one individual attempted to actually assassinate a Supreme Court justice. You know, and some have argued that it was based on some, you know, some of the speech that Schumer and others had done. Where does it kind of cross the line into insurrection? Uh, I assume Schumer is not on the line of insurrectionists, but how much further does it have to go before there's like protests or violent protests or pushing against Supreme Court police to have it can be also considered an insurrection? Uh, uh, There's a lot of First
3: Amendment protections to speech, including what people would call incitement speech. Uh, There's been a series of cases in the Supreme Court, one the NAACP, where there have been very specific threats made by, in this case, an NAACP official. Very specific threat uh, that uh, they they were going to be victims of a crime, that, that, that they were gonna come for them. Uh, if uh, they didn't, you know, uh, observe the boycott or whatever, whatever the issue was in the case. And uh, the court said uh, that's protected by the First Amendment. You, you uh, and that and I think uh, uh, so that that cabins uh, the use of speech, what's protected by the First Amendment, which can be very aggressive in terms of threats that are made. And and uh, so that's off off limits, all right. As Corey said correctly, with spe- you know speech and actions on the floor of Congress, that's off limits. And and then now we got to deal with the word engage. Okay, engage is not a, a word of speech, as uh, uh, the Attorney General said uh, in the in eighteen uh, sixty nine, uh, but direct over a uh, direct overt act now. A direct overt act can be, for instance, the commander of a brigade of Confederate soldiers telling them to hit, you know, to attack the hill. I mean, that's speech, uh, but it's a direct overt act of launching an attack uh, uh, in conjunction with obviously a war in that case. Uh, So, but that's a very narrow category, okay, because if if engaged doesn't mean conduct, what in the world would it mean, okay? Now, there can be words that are so connected to conduct that it would be engaged, and I would agree with that. But let me give you an example of Marjorie Taylor Greene right? Of the the 100 exhibits, the hours and hours of testimony, the videos and everything else, it came down to one appearance on one television show before January 6th, where she said, January 6th will be our 1776 moment. Now, that was a phrase that was being used by the members of Congress who were going to object to certain the electors, okay? And uh, that whether or not those votes should should count in, in Congress. And that's what they were being prepared for. What you don't know, and probably no one on this call knows, is that there was this fringe group over here that created a secret 1776 project which involved... Uh, Uh, a protest at the Capitol at the time of the uh, counting of the votes. So that seek so, and they called that, and they're correct, that's a cold word, right? In other words, a word that every one of us would associate with the most important year in the history of our country, our independence, with a fringe group's Project regarding January 6th and the uh, Capitol. That was the only fact. Now, insurrectionists need to be charged with a crime. By the way, no one who was involved in the attack on January 6th, as despicable as it was, and as violent as it was, not a single one has been charged with engaging in an insurrection. The closest you get to that is um, uh, is sedition. Sedition is a much broader term and it is not engaging in an insurrection. So not even the FBI and the Justice Department that have people who are actually doing things that are uh, uh, unlawful, have ever had the gall, the audacity, or to take political hyperbole to that extent of actually charging one with a crime. Marjorie Taylor Greene on the day of January 6th was on the floor of the United States Congress doing her constitutional duties. When the attack occurred to her great surprise and terror, they thought, you know, who's attacking the Capitol? Is my life in danger? You know, she's texting her family about her life being in danger because people are attacking the Capitol. So she is charged with engaging in an insurrection. It's not that insurrectionists shouldn't be punished. It is weaponizing a term and a process like this to go after your political enemies. And and if it would be Trump, and uh, uh, Presley, the Free Speech for People (laughs) website says, they sent letters to every Secretary of State in the United States saying Trump is not qualified. So okay. I'm just going from that. Can you imagine repeating Cawthorn and Green and uh, and the Arizona case uh, of uh, throughout 2024 and
2: uh, trying to figure out how we can elect a president if Trump? Okay. Was- uh, let, let's let Mr. Mullen
4: respond to that if he wishes. Yeah, I mean, I think. Again, the, you know, people have been charged with sedition. I don't know the details of the New Mexico case that Corey was talking about, but what I understood is that this fella who is a, you know, county commissioner in New Mexico would sworn an oath to defend the constitution is, you know, essentially standing on the steps of the Capitol and urging them to, you know, go on boys, you know, beat the crap out of the Capitol police, uh, you know? The fact of the matter is, you know, it's, it's all well and good to talk about Antifa. And I doubt many of them took oaths to the United States. It's all well and good to talk about pro-abortion uh, pro-life uh, or pro-abortion demonstrators that you all do. But the fact of the matter is what happened on January 6th. You know, there are consequences from that. And, you know, in Jim's case, with respect to Marjorie Taylor Greene, it sounds like the system worked and she was found not to have engaged in insurrection. And good for her. But to the extent that there were others who were in there bashing in policemen's heads, looking to hang Mike Pence looking to impede the government engaging in sedition, which apparently Jim thinks is some sort of low level crime with respect to the United States. There are consequences. And it wasn't liberal operatives who were doing that, unless as some of these Congress people have said, "Oh, that was really just Antifa <laughs> demonstrators on January 6th. But I know none of y'all believe that.
0: Yeah. Corey, did you want to uh, respond at all? Yeah, I, th- I think the original question was whether, um, you know, Supreme Court protesters may be crossing the line. Um, and let's just think about the elements of this, at least as the New Mexico court defined it, it's probably the clearest definition we have so far. Um, I'm not sure it's correct, but it's real reasonably clear. And one one of the elements there is numerosity. You, you can't have an insurrection alone, you have gotta be part of a, a group. And so um, I don't think the guy who wanted to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh committed an insurrection, he was alone. Okay. Um, uh, if it's correct, that giving orders could constitute insurrection. Then, like you know, I guess you'd have some sort of argument for um, uh, Senator Schumer. Although I don't, I don't think um, you know any court would find that it would constitute insurrection. You also mm-hmm. have to be not just disruptive, but trying to uh, impede a governmental function, right? And so, showing up outside the Supreme Court and being like very loud and 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 you know expressing disapproval isn't enough. You have to stop them from functioning in some way. Um, and so I, um, I don't think that um, those examples are likely to be found by a court to constitute insurrection. So much of what's doing the work here is just an intuitive sense of what does an insurrection look like. And that's um, <laughs> about the best authority we have at this point because the the legal decisions are sparse.
2: Okay. One of the questions was, can you review the Fourth Circuit ruling was a procedural, or did they find that Cawthorne was an insurrectionist? My understanding was that the Fourth Circuit ruled that the uh, Amnesty Act uh, did not apply prospectively. It applied retroactively, but not prospectively. Fourth Circuit may have been right or wrong on that, uh, but then they remanded back without actually deciding if Cawthorne was an insurrectionist. Now, Cawthorne lost his primary, so it effectively uh, ended that process because it, it didn't matter anymore. Uh, but that's what the Fourth Circuit rule, is there anyone else that wants to discuss the Fourth Circuit ruling? No? no okay, right. uh, let's see. La- and the last question currently on it, uh, on the list from anyone in the audience is, uh, why has no one been charged with the insurrection? Uh, if they Have they been charged and if so, with what? Uh, so uh, maybe Mr. Mullen, why has no one been charged with insurrection?
4: I mean, obviously, that's, a, that's an issue uh, well beyond anything that, that I would have anything to do with. I represented a bunch of rank-and-file voters in North Carolina. I mean, a lot of things have been charged with respect to what happened on January 6th. Some of those include seditious uh, conspiracy. Some of those are obviously continuing to be investigated. And I don't think the charging is necessarily all done. Uh, and there are a host of things that have been done. And, you know, it's, it, one of the things that's interesting to me is I don't know how many of those people who were doing what they did on that day, things that I think all three of us would agree were acts. You know, unquestionably acts. I don't know how many of them would fit the category of persons who uh, who would have sworn an oath. Um, you know, very few young people, for example, would have sworn an oath. Very few. You know high school graduates uh, without, you know, proceeding on to college or law school will have sworn an oath. So I think it's it's sort of an astonishingly small number of people, I don't think this is going to be some kind of brush fire, I would be very surprised if that's the case. But I do think that, you know, the nation decided in 1868 that these people were not fit to serve in federal and state office. And I think that that decision continues to today.
2: Okay. Well, with that, we're at uh, two o'clock and we're going to have to end. Uh, So I want to thank everyone for coming out today and having an interesting discussion.
1: Thanks so much, Devin, and I'll echo your thanks for the rest of our panelists as well. And thank you for our audience for tuning in to today's event. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all the major social media platforms at Fedsoc to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this
0: episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.